Well, that was embarrassing. My staff thinks I care too much about the middle class. They just have to understand where my priorities are. Maybe we should get downstairs. Good idea. But first, uh, it's a little something I picked out special just for you. Thank you. To Angela. No way. <laughs> Live from New York, it's Saturday night! You like it, a juice? You like it, the juice? Mmm. That is some delicious juice. And the juice is good. Uh, and in that case, uh, that's not a metaphor for this episode because it sucked, but the, the, the mango drink I'm drinking is good. No, uh, this is a, uh, this was kind of a bummer to watch, um, but an interesting you know bummer. I had fun with it. You know what I can't say about this episode? It's not the Frank Stallone of SNL episodes because Frank Stallone's awesome, and this episode <laughs> was not. This episode totally franked. Uh,. No, yeah, well, it didn't. It uh, I, th- I think uh, it jackied because fuck Jackie Stallone for insulting Frank Stallone. You're saying they got the metaphor wrong. Uh, well, that's a spoiler for the ten to one sketch. Which man, I was like totally checked out by that point. Honestly, the last like three sketches of this episode, I was like, yeah, come the fuck on. And I'm not watching taking it in the background. Notes. <laughs> I feel like we can say it kind of garofaloed. Maybe that's the word we should use from now on. Well, I mean, uh, I want to get into that because this, this, well, first, before we get into anything, welcome to Saturday Night Jive, where we talk about Saturday Night Live and Saturday Night Live related movies. Uh, We are watching episode nine of season 20 of Saturday Night Live, hosted by George Foreman and musical guest Hole. And if that sounds like a match made in heaven, then I don't know who the fuck you are, because... And that's something... We, get, we just got to talk about that because it's like you kind of take it for granted now because the show's been on for what, like almost 50 years now, like 45 years or something. What's the se- what season are they in now? 46. 46. This is season 20. Think of all the, the great sh- like Twin Peaks and it got canceled after two seasons or like Erie, Indiana, this great show it canceled in one season. This show at this point was on for 20 fucking years. And this is the caliber that we're getting in year 20. That's just, we don't stop and focus on just how fucking insane that is. Well, I don't know if you can compare this to like a regular like sitcom or scripted television series. That would be like saying, oh, fucking Meet the Press has been on for 65 years. Like, when are they going to cancel that piece of shit? But it's still written. I mean, it's not, it's not, yeah, maybe it's not like The Simpsons, but... It's, I, I think it's different than Meet the Press. Meet the Press, you know, that, that's its own thing. This, it's a scripted show, and the scripts are this bad, and, like, it's... I don't know, I feel like it should be subject to the same rules. They should have fucking canceled this show in this season. Well, you're not the only person who thinks that, because this is the notorious season that basically forced the show to the brink of cancellation. Uh, almost everyone got fired, uh, and the people who didn't get fired thought they were getting fired at some point. The show was terrible, and this episode in particular is very notorious and infamous because this is the episode where the writer of the New York Magazine article that's uh, coined the phrase Saturday Night Dead, he was there this week and reported on this episode for that article. Oh my god, that makes so much sense. That's yeah. fucking hilarious. I didn't yeah, know that. I, I kind of wanted to start with that because uh, I pulled up the... Uh, it's not called, uh, what the article is called, 
Comedy isn't funny. The inside story of the decline and fall of Saturday Night Live. And uh, I kind of wanted to start with this little paragraph here. Foreman is rehearsing his role as Uncle Joe, a shy wedding guest who is being tormented by Kevin Nealon. This five-minute sketch isn't particularly complicated or particularly funny, yet after an hour of rehearsal, Nealon is still stumbling over his lines. There's a metallic clatter as a stagehand knocks lighting poles to the floor. Five actors, 15 extras, and four musicians sit silently, waiting for the disembodied voice of Dave Wilson, the show's director for its two-decade run, to give them instructions. Pot-bellied technicians jam chocolate chip cookies into their mouth. A couple of SNL writers waiting for Uncle Joe to finish so they can rehearse their own bit snicker that the sketch should be renamed Uncle Slow. And it's all true. Yeah. Imagine, because we'll get to Uncle Joe, but imagine how, like, deathly unfunny that sketch was, watching it in real time. Imagine if you were sitting in on the dress rehearsal. Not the dress rehearsal, like the blocking rehearsal for that sketch. When you had to take stops and starts while they readjusted camera setups. And then they went, okay, Kevin, take it back to your 17th time you said Uncle Joe. No, 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 that's the 19th time you said Uncle Joe. We're we're going back to the 17th time you said Uncle Joe. Because that, that's the thing, too. We talk about, like, the, the, the process by which they pick sketches... And just the idea that, like, they cut so many sketches. And, like, a lot of times, um, Seth Meyers does this a lot. Well, they'll have, like, SNL people on, and they'll talk about, like, the sketches they, they regret that got cut or that they never were able to do. And, like, what sketches got cut out of this? But on the other hand, I wonder, like, how much of that is the host? Like, how much did... Were there, like, five brilliant sketches, and they pitched them to George Foreman, and he went, I don't get it. What about that Uncle Joe? That was funny, because I'm Uncle Joe. Like, like, or was that it? Like, what what happened here? Well, because like these are they're 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 smart writers. We know they write good things on okay on other episodes. How did Uncle Joe happen? I mean, you can blame it all on the writers, um, but you also kind of have to blame it on George Foreman himself. I mean, he plays George Foreman in almost every single sketch, so they were working with someone with like limited capabilities. So I, I can imagine they either probably didn't pitch good sketch ideas or the sketch ideas they pitched they were like well we have to cater this to a a six foot boxer who's been hitting the head every day for the past 40 years and and you know what this sketch or this this episode rather i mean the cold open was garbage fucking i think mike mckeon might be the worst president uh, uh, the guy a cast member on snl that ever played the president or any president not just clinton uh well Are you forgetting Charles Rockets Ronald Reagan? <laughs> Charles Rockets Ro- Ronald Reagan is almost like so bad it's good. Like I, I kind of laugh at how shitty it is. Whereas this is just so banal. Like I don't even get that enjoyment out of it. Yeah, I think Michael McKeon only played Bill Clinton two or three times. Uh, I think the show and Michael McKeon both knew that like this wasn't working. This wasn't the right fit. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not criticizing him as a, a performer. I, I love Michael McKean, and I actually think he was okay on the show. I just don't think they gave him enough material. But this is just, yeah, this is just weak. My only thing thinking about this is Janine Garofalo just really doesn't want to be there, and it's oh, yeah. like that's I, that shows. And she's in a lot of this show, this episode, and I just it makes me feel so sad every time she's on screen. Yeah, and it's crazy to think that this is only episode nine. She's been on the show for like three months tops 
And she is quoted heavily in that New York Magazine article as like, I hate this show. I want to leave. This is the worst experience ever. And she's only been there three months. The season's not even halfway over. Well, I mean, and part of that is obviously the kind of comedian she is. She just is not a good fit for this kind of show. Uh, we'll get to, like, the Weekend Update thing. So I just keep like, why do they keep asking Janine Garofalo to do impressions? She's not an impressionist. That's not her style of comedy. She's the only woman on the show who's white. <laughs> the only other female cast member is Ellen Cleghorn. Now, I would love to see her Hillary Clinton impression, but... I don't know how far that's going to get everybody. And I do know because I I went to the the first episode of this season when I was searching through the episodes. Remember, this is the first episode of this season had the "Who's going to play Bill Clinton?" quote open. Yeah, where Tim Meadows tries out for Bill Clinton. Yeah, and in retrospect, I feel like they should have just done that and had Ellen Clayhorn be be Hillary. Yeah, I love that quote. That was the season premiere. Because he had Farley doing his uh, Bill Clinton impression, David Spade, Adam Sandler, and uh, Chris Elliott. Yeah, I didn't have anything else to say about the cold open, uh, except that I did realize when I pointed out that Janine Garofalo is the only female member of this cast, the reason we picked this episode is because we pulled Marina Banks' name out. She doesn't get added to the cast until later in this season. I didn't even think of that. I completely fucking forgot that it was Marina Banks. I didn't think about that when we picked it. I was just like, oh, we picked Marina Banks. The only option is to watch a season 20 episode. But I didn't think that we had to watch an episode that she was actually in. I I don't think it, it matters that much. I mean, it's our stupid fucking rubric for picking episodes. I don't think it ever matters. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing I wanted to talk about is there's a moment in the cold open where there's like a banging. And apparently that's a reference to like there were gunshots at the White House. And I think they said a, something about a plane crash or something. I, I legitimately thought that was just, like, an accident and they were trying to cover it. Like I did, too. I didn't remember that news story. I thought, like, somebody banged something and they were like, what was that? Probably nothing. Yeah, I <laughs> I thought, like, some lighting equipment fell. Because it's also sloppy. Like, the first time it happens, they kind of cue it right. But then the second time it happens, like, Janine Garofalo starts talking before it happens. And then it, it just, it also, it seems like an accident. Um, but, yeah, I... I figured out the context by Norm Macdonald's first weekend update joke. I was like, oh, that's what that gunshots were in the cold open. That's what that meant. And I, yeah, speaking of missed cues, this is like the Anthony Michael Hall of episodes when it comes to missed cues. Oh, yeah. It seems like it's just all over the fucking place. Well, you're you're dealing with a host who is not a professional actor or entertainer. Um, so, yeah, this guy, oh, and is, it's not was, his job to just, talk well. No. Well, I mean, was he selling grills at this point? No, that was later. I feel like they would have made jokes of that if he was. Yeah. Because, yeah, there there was no George Foreman grill reference. No, this was kind of the beginning of George Foreman as a television personality because he was, you know, he was a a pretty, uh, you know, he's a famous boxer in his heyday. But then he uh, came out of retirement and like randomly won the heavyweight championship of the world uh, against Michael Moore, basically because he just stayed there and let himself get punched for like three hours until Michael Moore got tired and then he punched him in the face and knocked him out. I mean, I, that's the thing. I know nothing about George Foreman as a boxer. I know he was a famous boxer and apparently very successful, but I know him as the guy from the grill. I have a George Foreman grill in my house and it's, it's very, it's a very good grill, but yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't have any association with him as a sports guy. Well, it was like ridiculous in 1995 that George Foreman was heavyweight champion of the world. Cause he was like in his 
40s and like that's that's not something that happens so it was kind of like a big joke like no one was like oh man george foreman old ass george foreman's the next mike tyson well i was gonna say where when was that in relation to mike tyson because i remember mike tyson was like nobody boxed like that before or after you know so was it was that after him yeah it'd be a good like six or seven years after mike tyson in his prime i think hmm. um but yeah because well, was... i guess did mike tyson then come back because i remember when he bit Evander Holyfield's ear off. That, that was, was like that was later, later, wasn't it? Yeah, no, he was like heavyweight. So he must have come out of retirement as well. Yeah, I, well, I don't know. I don't know how retirement works in boxing. If you like officially retire, or if you just stop punching people for a while. Well, you get punched enough that you can't do it anymore, and then you just stop doing yeah, it. Yeah, and then and then you show up on Saturday Night Live and then go into a time machine and punch Hitler. And one day you wake up, you rub your face, and you're like, eh, "My face could stand a couple more punches. Put me back in the ring." But before we get to the monologue or anything else, I do just want to point out, I wrote it in my notes, I will never get used to and starring Ellen Cleghorn, <laughs> just because she's the first one. And I, she is not in this episode, is she? I think she's like... No, the, she's in the Uncle Joe sketch. Yeah, I think she's the bride in the Uncle Joe sketch. Maybe she has like one line in that, but other than that, she's not in this. I, yeah, I didn't see Laura Keitlinger either. Janine Garofalo was like the only woman in this whole show. Oh, yeah, you were saying she's the only white woman. Laura Keitlinger probably would have been a better Hillary, ultimately. Yeah, I, I don't know where she was. I, I, she was in the opening credits, but I did not see her in the episode at all, unless she was a background extra. Um, but yeah, I have nothing to say about the monologue, except that, you know, it's like, uh-oh. <laughs> we know we're in for a bad time when George Foreman starts mumbling through stuff. These people here have been so nice. Sure, there's been a few disagreements, but uh, that's only natural. <laughs> Guess who won? <laughs> I'm telling you, no one in this cast can take a punch. <laughs> David Spade fights like a girl. <laughs> now, Chris Farley, big guy, strong guy, a lot of heart, but not a genius. <laughs> Look, Chris, your shoes are untied. <laughs> <laughs> and Chris Elliott, every time I looked at the guy, he started crying like a baby. <laughs> but I hear... That's the way it is with every host. Well, I feel like the whole premise of that monologue is the entire premise of the episode and like the, a metaphor for it where it's like, he's he's good at punching things and likes to punch things. That's going to be his character in like five sketches. Oh, yeah. He plays George Foreman for everything except for uh, two sketches, I think. So, yeah, let's go into Time Boxer. But just not just George Foreman. George, a caricature of George Foreman where... The only thing he knows how to do is punch. Because, like, I, I assume George Foreman has other interests, but in every sketch it's like, hey, you need me to punch Hitler? Okay. You need me to punch Adam Sandler in the face? Okay. All I know is punching. It's all I've been taught. That being said, I fucking loved Time Boxer. Okay, so let's uh, put you into your accountant job. One, two, three, punch. That's all I know. Which, if they'd done a sketch like that, where it's like, you put him in a situation where he can't punch and all he knows how to do is punch, that's a funny sketch. The one thing you cannot do in this in this situation is punch. Hey, uh, I need a job. I, I'm a heavyweight boxer, but I, I, you know, I don't know, that, that doesn't pay the bills. Why don't you get a job at this Fabergé egg store? <laughs> but don't punch anything. <laughs> he points to a sign, no punching. <laughs> Oh. All right, Time Boxer. Um, okay, right away, my first note for Time Boxer, before we get into Mike Myers as Hitler, my first note, 
George Foreman's first line. Chris Elliott. I thought NASA. I thought NASA only did space <laughs> travel. Chris Elliott and Michael McKeon are like, oh, George Foreman, welcome to NASA. Let us show you our time machine. Sure is great of you to drop in on us like this, champ. Yeah. You know, we have a lot of big boxing fans here at the Experimental Time Travel Division. Time travel? I thought NASA only did space travel. I thought NASA only did space travel. (laughs) That makes no sense. It should be, I thought NASA only did space travel. Right. Yeah, he he puts the emphasis on the wrong line. And it's, yeah, it's fucking right out the gate. He put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. I mean, that set the tone right away. I didn't notice that was actually Michael Buffer. Yeah. So so George Foreman gets in the time machine, uh, and then he's transported to Germany 1930s. And then we just smash cut Mike Myers as Hitler. Well, no, we don't smash cut because we have the... The intro theme of Time Boxer, oh my which God. is George Foreman standing in front of a green screen with his arms up going, Oh no, I'm traveling in time! With like dinosaurs in the back of Oh my God. It's, it's right off the bat, I'm like, fuck it, I love this. I forgot about that. Yeah, so much thought and effort went into that opening title sequence. Even the theme song is just someone like going, He's Time Boxer, he's boxing in time, he's going through time, and he's boxing. And then it's just George Foreman. Ah, ah. It's not like he could have like been running away from something or like dodge. He's just literally standing front, uh, facing front with his arms waving, going, oh, no. Just flailing his arms. Yeah, he looks like that like wacky inflatable tube man. Like he's fucking selling used cars in a abandoned lot. And then we get to Mike Myers as Hitler. And I'm not going to criticize... I mean, I know we make fun of Mike Myers for, like, showing up in yellow face and, you know, shit like that. And I guess I'm trying to think, was there any racism in this episode? Um, I don't think there was. Not that I remember. But Mike Myers is, like... uh, Mike Myers and Billy Crystal, I think, are the two, like, people in SNL history who have the most problematic things. And it's just so funny that, like... Yeah, after seeing Mike Myers play so many Asian stereotypes, just Mike Mike, Mike Myers and a Hitler mustache. I was like, well, that makes kind of sense. Deutschland über alles! For ich bin nicht zu seinen Pierre! Ich bin auch der große Kaffee in aller Zeit! Very good, mein Führer. Thank you, Goebbels. Care to spar a few rounds today? Hot against you, mein Führer. You are such a good boxer. The greatest of all time! (laughs) Gott in Himmel! Where am I? Germany, 1939. It worked. Should I have him arrested, mein Führer? No. Wait. I have a better idea. I'll teach him a lesson in the boxing ring. Look at him, so fat and old. (laughs) He must be 47. You're on, Hitler. But he's also really fucking funny as Hitler. I mean, he's doing like the effeminate, you know, sort of chaplain Hitler, but it's fun. Yeah, I actually... (laughs) This sketch has some, like, issues, but... I think this is my favorite one of the night. 
Oh, easily. Well, just for fucking Chris Farley as Mussolini, just doing, I'm a, I'm a talking Italian. Because um, it's got some, like, real funny lines that, I mean, sadly, George Foreman doesn't nail all of them. But, like, I love the lines, like, when Chris Elliott and Michael McKeon try to pull him back, because if he beats up Hitler, he'll change time. Before they stop, he's like, not now, I'm beating up Hitler. Yeah. And then they're just like, hey, I guess we'll just make a bet on Hitler. <laughs> I mean, a bet on George yeah. Hmm. Oh, yeah, and then Chris Elliott goes, who's got Hitler money? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, I hate the lazy way they end this sketch. Uh, season 20 loved ending sketches with text crawls where, like, you know, they don't have an ending, so they just pause the sketch, and then Al Franken gives an epilogue of what happened afterwards. George Foreman became Fuhrer of the Third Reich, living at Bertus Garden with his wife, Ava Braun Foreman. But he was a good Fuhrer, building a utopian Germany based on tolerance and compassion. Foreman also proved a brilliant military tactician, conquering Europe, Asia, and the United States. I don't like that style of ending, but I laughed at, uh, for some reason, he also gets Hitler's wife. She's Ava Braun Foreman now. Right, and it, I mean, it, <laughs> in fairness, it was a funny text crawl because uh, <laughs> in the alternate history... George Foreman beat up Hitler, and so he became the Fuhrer of Germany, uh, and he guided with compassion and uh, kindness. But he also conquered Europe, Asia, and the United States. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he also became, a you know, an evil dictator. So yeah, and so this, this sketch, and it was the first big sketch of the night, and it set me up. I was like is this episode going to be good? Like, is this, did George like try to like trick me or something? But it was just all downhill from here. Oh yeah. Yeah. Even the the only sketch I remember liking from this episode from previous watches was the Chris Elliott one at the end. But even that dragged for me in this watch, just, I think just basically because I was just so beaten down by that point because yeah, everything after time boxer is just. And speaking of which looking good, George Foreman likes to punch people in the face, now on a talk show. Yeah. Welcome back to Looking Good. With us now is George Foreman. You probably know him as a heavyweight boxing champion of the world, but today George is going to talk about beauty and fashion makeovers. George, what exactly are you going to show us? <laughs> well, I've taken some very ordinary people from the audience and made them look better looking. Hmm, by emphasizing their best features and downplaying the others? Yeah, like that. Okay. Uh, Janine Garofalo hosts a talk show about beauty makeovers. George Foreman does the beauty makeovers, but all his beauty maker makeovers involve punching people in the face. So we see Chris Farley with a beat up face, Adam Sandler with a beat up face. And then the punchline is Chris Elliott comes in and his head is turned completely around and that's it. Well, I will say those two, mo- well, there's three moments in this sketch that the- I think Adam Sandler's performance is fun, just him cowering and flinching. Uh, I thought, uh, yeah, when you when Chris Elliott comes out with the head turned around is funny, but just that there's a static image where they show his before picture, <laughs> and I don't know why it made me laugh. It's not like a funny image. It's just Chris Elliott's face smiling, yeah. and it's just for some reason. That picture makes me laugh. That picture, I forgot that it came from this episode, but that picture used to be my profile picture at work. <laughs> Back when we were allowed to have goofy profile pictures, I was like, I'm just going to put up this picture of Chris Elliott. But then they were like, ah, you have to have pictures of your actual faces now. And I was like, oh, I liked my Chris Elliott picture. The looking good sketch, just the end of it, where he threatens to punch Janine Garofalo in the stomach to get rid of her cellulite. 
Oh, yeah. No, he threatens to beat up a woman. That's the final punchline. And that just ruined everything for me. Anyway, we're all out of time. George, I understand you're going to be back with us next week to share your secret for breaking up cellulite deposits. Yes, that's that's right. I can show you now. Pick a part of your body. Why don't we just save that for next week? (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, up next, it seems early for a musical guest, but we're jumping straight into Hole and uh, Doll Parts. Good boy. Was this, uh, did you listen to these? I tried. I legitimately tried. And uh, no, Hole really sucks ass. And it's all Courtney Love, because I think the band's fine. The second song was a little better, because it was a little faster. But her... Her performance is just like, she does not give a shit, and I just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a style, um, you know, I don't know if it's a not giving a shit, it's just, I think it's a style more than anything else. It feels like her doing a Kurt Cobain impression. Yeah, but I, these songs were just garbage. I, I listened to them, but I was, I had to do other things, I was like, I can't devote all of my fucking energy to this. Well, I mentioned last week when we were talking about it that uh, uh, I, was, I always confused the band Hole with the band Garbage. And I think Garbage was actually a pretty good band. Uh, but I think the reason for that is I would listen to Hole and I'd go, oh, Hole is garbage. And then I would just think it was the band Garbage. When in fact they were just garbage. Weekend update with Norm MacDonald. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Norm MacDonald, and this is the fake news. And now we get weekend update with Norm MacDonald. This is Norm MacDonald's first season at the anchor desk, and... It's pretty weak. Yeah, maybe it was watching it right after Hole, but I was like... I thought it was kind of weak. Well, you notice the audience isn't laughing that much. There there was one, well, two legitimately funny jokes. There was the Weird Al Unabomber joke that I liked. And my favorite one, I wrote it down. That sandwich gave me AIDS just as sure as I'm a male prostitute. <laughs> that was good. Um, I, liked, uh, I liked the joke about penis size and height. In a survey this week, men said they preferred penis size to height. 62% of men said they'd rather be five foot two with a seven inch penis. 36% said they'd rather be six foot three with a three inch penis. And the remaining 2% said they'd rather be one foot four with a 300 inch penis. My favorite joke, of course, was uh, the new cable channel Fish TV, where it shows only fish except for 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. when it shows the Byron Allen show. I don't know. I feel like that was kind of inside baseball. <laughs> That's a good, well, the Byron Allen show, like, I don't know, I was, it was funny because I was at a hotel, like, a couple years ago, and I turned on the TV just to see what was on. It was late at night, and of course it was fucking Byron Allen. <laughs> and I thought back of all the fucking Norm MacDonald Byron Allen jokes. I'm almost never up that late watching, because I didn't even have regular TV at my house, but like, yeah, a couple years ago, I was uh, out with Dad at a, he had a festival, and we were uh, hanging out and, and watching TV, and, and it was Byron Allen at like 2 in the morning, so it's like, yeah, that's the only thing on at that time. <laughs> 2 in the morning, it's Byron Allen or nothing. Uh, and then we get Janine Garofalo as Martha Stewart. And our childish eyes, as big as saucers, eager to spy what good things Chris Kringle had brought. Hold on a second there, Martha. Chris Kringle? 
Yes, Norm, you know, Père Noël, Father Christmas, good Saint Nick. You mean Santa Claus. Oh, you called him Santa Claus. Hmm. Anyway, it being Christmas, Mater and Pater had dismissed the staff. Wait, wait a minute. Mater and Pater? Yes, it's our parents, that's what we called them. Where did you grow up? Norm, that doesn't matter. You see, Christmas is the same throughout the world. Nah, I'm just curious, where? New Jersey. Anyway, there we children stood. I will say the premise of this bit works on paper. It just doesn't work as a performance. The idea that she's fake and she's from New Jersey and he's constantly pointing out like, what? What are you talking about? Wassling? You're from New Jersey. That, I feel like that could have worked. It's just something about, again, Janine Garofalo doesn't do a good impression. She's not an impressionist. It feels like she doesn't want to be here. So it just, and again, Laura Keitlinger, I think, would have worked in this role so much better. Yeah. And if you compare this to like Anna Gasteyer's Martha Stewart impression, this probably would have worked if Anna Gasteyer was playing Martha Stewart. If you did not tell me that Janine Garofalo was supposed to be playing Martha Stewart, I would have no fucking idea. I would just think Janine Garofalo was giving a commentary. What this needs is, well, one, she's not doing an impression. It needs an impression specifically of that kind of proper, you know, cadence that she has. And then it needs her to slip into like a, a, a you know, like a, a, like a New Jersey accent. Yeah. Like it needs her to like like the facade to drop. But yeah. she's not even putting up a facade and then it doesn't drop. So, you know, it doesn't yeah. make any sense. And again, it's the ninth episode of this season. She is already completely over this show. She does not want to be on this show at this point. Yeah, and it shows. And I mean, and I don't blame her one bit. It's I'm, This isn't even a criticism. I, I like Janine Garofalo as a comedian. I just, it's just clearly, this does not work. Yeah. I mean, because she's great on, you know, Ben Stiller's show, which he would go on to do. And and, all that, and by the way, I, we'll get to this later, but this, Bruce McCulloch shows up at the end of this fucking episode. And I had to look it up. This was after Kids in the Hall. Yeah. Uh, Lore, well, the Kids in the Hall was ending, I think, this year. And Lorne tried to get all of them to come on. Uh, and then that's how Mark McKinney ended up. He joins the cast later on this season. Yeah. But no, I, I didn't realize Bruce McCullough ever did anything for SNL. I mean, I, I, f- I thought he might have been a writer or something, but I didn't realize he'd ever shown up on the show. Him and McKinney were actually writers in the early year. Like, they were writers on the season 11 with Nora Well, Dunn. I know, because they wrote uh, these, the joke in the um, the black uh, that black girl sketch where the he says, uh, you know, um, something about the, the writers. Like, why don't you write good jokes or something like that? Apparently, Mark McKinney wrote that joke. Oh, yeah. Well, you can hear Mark McKinney's voice on that season. He's actually the announcer of the Pat Stevens show as well. Um, (laughs) Boring SNL minutia trivia. Sorry. Well, I I had to stop and take a drink so that I could talk about the cultists, which I don't know if I like this or hate it. I hate it. Uh, Two guys from a religious cult. This is just a lot of screaming. Only saved by Chris Farley saying... The peach cobbler was delightful. He waits for you in the slaughterhouse! Whoa, 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 there are two guys from a religious cult. Uh, I know you love that whole cult thing, but uh, how about that new restaurant? Is the food good or what? The foul miss of... Die, you fornicators! ...the obscene ones. Cry the tears of the devil! The reaper has arrived! of the Chosen. And the blood drips from the beaks of the vultures. You will bathe in the blood of the black pig! I command you! All right, all right, all right, that's it. 
Well, because the thing is, you know the the punchline a mile away. They're going to do all this crazy cult stuff, and then at the end they're going to go, just review the thing, and they go, service was good, food was too expensive, whatever. Like, that's the joke, but they just, they do too many beats of their crazy cultists before they get to that. I feel like they should have done a beat of each one. They should have done, oh, hail Satan, whatever, and then, no, just talk about the restaurant. Food was good, and then they go into it again, and then another beat about the restaurant. It should have, I don't know, been more interspersed rather than all this build-up of bullshit before you get to the one joke. Yeah, and I think this is the second time they've done this. Really? They've done this at least twice. I don't know if this is the first one or the second one. Yeah. Um, But yeah, that's all I got for Weekend Update. Let's move over to Matt Foley training George Foreman. Speaking of something that I had no idea was a recurring bit, I didn't realize there was ever another Matt Foley sketch. Oh, really? No, they did a lot of, well, probably seven or eight times, I would say. Because I, I remember the, the big famous one, which I think is the first one, right? Yeah, and then they did, um, like, another one of that, like, basically the same one. They had one where he was a mall Santa. Uh, they had this one. They had one all in Spanish. They just did Matt Foley in Espanol for no reason whatsoever. Uh, and then he did it when he came back and hosted. Oh, I, I do remember that. But I wasn't really counting that. I was thinking, like, in, at the time. I, yeah, I don't remember any of those other ones. And I didn't remember this. And I'm going to say this. Maybe this is a Chris Farley fan, and SNL fan sacrilege. I'm not a big fan of Matt Foley. I don't think he ever should have been a recurring character. I think the first one was a classic. And then... That sketch is great, but I don't think he... At small doses, I don't think he works here. <clears throat> oh, yeah. No, I, I think it's... Definitely diminishing returns. They should not have brought him back. I mean, 10 years later when Chris Farley hosts the show, sure, bring back Matt Foley. Um, but yeah, I, this character does not work for me other than the the original one. Oh no, I give up. My life is a magnificent shambles. Who am I? <laughs> Take it easy, man. What? It'll be all right. Who are you? My name is George, George Foreman. The boxer? Well, shouldn't you be in the ring giving somebody the old one, two, buckle my you? <laughs> no, I don't think I can do it anymore. After my last fight, I knew I could never strike another man. <laughs> Today, I'm at the crossroads. I hear you, partner. I do am at a fork in the river. I used to be one of the leading motivational speakers in these United States. Nowadays, I couldn't motivate a white out of belch. I've officially amounted to jack you squat. Hey, I got an idea. Why don't you motivate me? Really? <laughs> you, we, we can help each other. Help? Well, all righty. And you know what I would have done for a Matt Foley comeback when he when he hosted? Because, yeah, the exercise one, I remember that. But, like, have it, like, what happens if he gets successful? He's no longer living in a van down by the river. He's, like, the CEO of a company. <laughs> do, like, uh, I don't know, like, It's a Wonderful Life or, or not, I guess, like, do like, no, do, like, a Christmas Carol, but with Matt Foley. Having <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to go back to when he was living in a van down by the river or something like that. I don't know, this just, this just seems like... Completely redundant. Yeah, or they could have Matt Foley training George Foreman back into the boxing ring. Yeah, this was just a turd. Well, and then this is the also the only one that doesn't follow the same like motivational speaker routine. Because every other time they brought Matt Foley back, 
they may have changed the locales, but it's the same bit. He's brought in as a motivational speaker. This one, we get to see Matt Foley's life outside of that. And yeah, maybe uh, it, it's too much to see that, to pull, to pull back the curtain and follow Matt Foley around. See, I don't know. Now that you say that, though, like, you know how they do that thing? And I hate it when they do it now. Where they'll have a, uh, a an actor who's the host who has had a lot of roles like Jim. They did it with Jim Carrey, where it was like uh, Jim Carrey's family reunion, and it's all his characters. Mm-hmm. And it's always I, they've done it a couple times. I'm trying to think of who else they did it with. They but, did it with Christopher Walken and Adam Sandler. Okay, that the Adam Sandler one. I don't know if I saw the Christopher Walken one, but the Adam Sandler one I remember now. But and it's always terrible. But I feel like if they'd done that with Mick Foley, like <laughs> gone to like see all of his family, and they're all just like <laughs> Mick Foley. You can you see Ellen Cleghorn as Matt Foley Foley's adopted daughter. <laughs> I keep saying like, Mick Foley, who's the wrestler, who's very much like Matt Foley. I wonder if that's deliberate. Um, oh, the, the only last thing I did have to say about this Matt Foley sketch, I loved George Foreman's closing line where uh, they flash back and he's talking to Tim Meadows, who he's been telling this story to. By the way, this sketch exists in flashback for no reason. But now he's telling the story to Tim Meadows, and he's making Tim Meadows grill him burgers. And he all he has to say is, like, if you don't grill those burgers, you'll be living in a van down by the river. But it comes out like, if you don't be to the river in the van with... River! Wow, that's a great story. Uh, thanks. Now get back to those burgers pronto. I don't get it. How does this make me a better performer? Dexterity! Now make a medium well if you... Get the overcooking those things to do. You'll be doing a sketch from a van down by the river. And then he fake eats a burger. <laughs> it was yeah. My, it was my favorite part of the sketch. Hold on. <laughs> oh, shit. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. Okay. Here we go. I like that even though we're a podcast and it's all audio, you want us to watch it live in the background. I gotta see him eat this burger. Well, I'll cut this part out, but I just wanted to see it again. Cause <laughs> he's like, alright, I'm done with my line. Now I have to eat this burger. I take a bite. <laughs> and you can tell Matt, fucking Tim Meadows is just like, fucking whatever, man. <laughs> After George Forbin is like, fan down by the river. Then he takes a fake bite of the hamburger in his hand. Like, holds it up to his mouth, opens his mouth and closes it. Right in front of the burger. What a professional actor. Unfortunately, all the fun is now over because we've reached the Uncle Joe sketch. Oh my god, yeah, this was just the, the slow drumming beat of hell. Just, like, welcoming you forth. Uncle fucking Joe. Oh, looks like Uncle Joe's got a little stage fright. Come on, let's show him how much you love him. Uncle Joe! Come on! Take it away, Uncle Joe! Okay, you got me. (laughs) Okay, Warren and Denise, I love the both of you, so good luck. How's that? (laughs) Hey, sounds good to me. Let's hear it for Uncle Joe! Thanks for being a good sport. Okay. I think it's a time for a song now. Anybody like to sing a song to the bride and groom? Any singers out there? How about Uncle Joe, huh? Oh, looks like another no from Uncle Joe, but that's what he said last time. I think he's got it in him. So come on, Uncle Joe. 
Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe. I'm sorry, everyone. I, I'd sing, but I, I don't want to hurt your ears. <laughs> uh-oh, uh-oh. I think everybody's favorite Uncle Joe needs a little encouragement. So, let's go, Uncle Joe. Let's go, Uncle and, Joe. And the problem I keep having here, whenever we talk about these sketches and the ones we don't like, I feel like the solution is always so obvious. Like, how the hell do the writers not get, like, like we watch it and go, like, well, no, you clearly should. And this, it reminded me so much of the Honeymooner sketch. This needed to escalate. This They needed to have, like, like the Hans Gruber from Die Hard comes in and takes everybody hostage. And they're like, who needs to save us? Uncle Joe. Yeah. Oh, no, we got to disarm the nuclear bomb. Who's going to do it? Uncle Joe. It needed to go crazy. But it doesn't. It just, just Uncle Joe sing a song. Okay, Uncle Joe, sing another song. Who cares? Yeah, so uh, this sketch is Kevin Nealon is like a wedding singer, and he keeps saying, you know, who's going to make a speech? And then he goes over to George Foreman, his Uncle Joe, goes, Uncle Joe's going to make a speech. And he's like, okay, who's got a toast? Uncle Joe, you got a toast. Okay, who's going to sing a song? Uncle Joe, sing. And Uncle Joe doesn't want to be bothered. And this sketch is basically like, I think Kevin Nealon was like, you know what would be hilarious? If I say the words Uncle Joe 145 times in a sketch. Yeah. By the way, I want to thank you for always remembering to recap the sketch for the people listening who I just, I guess, always leap into it, assuming they're going to watch it with us. Like, <laughs> of course, they watch the George Foreman episode the same way we did. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, man, this is garbage. Well, and also when you're talking about it needed to be escalated, I, I think it needed another pass. I was, you know, I'm reading that New York Magazine article where he talks about. Other writers are waiting for their sketch. So the guys who wrote the Incredible Hulk sketch are like, all right, well, our sketch is rehearsing next, so we'll wait and we'll watch Uncle Joe rehearse. Why aren't they working together in tandem? Like, I don't, you know, not to tell you how to do your job, Lorne Michaels, but it seems like uh, the writers write a sketch, those sketches get picked, and then those sketches get rehearsed. But... I don't know if they have like, do they, you think they have a writer's room where they all kind of punch up the sketch? I get the feeling not, but I th- I also think, and this is just a lot of supposition on my part, I think Lauren Michaels applies the same sort of adversarial nature to the, the writer's room or whatever you want to call it that he does with like, with everything. I think he, he doesn't want them working together to make things better. I think he wants them competing with each other because he thinks that kind of thing makes things better. I don't think it does. And I think the show would be much better if they were able to confer and kind of figure out the best way to do a sketch with everybody. But yeah, I don't think he wants that that atmosphere. Yeah, well, and I mean, because the sketches aren't like individually credited by like who wrote this sketch, who wrote that sketch. You just get the list of writers at the end. So it's not like these writers are being credited with their sketches. No, but in the room, if you sell your sketch, that's a success. You beat the other people that couldn't do it, you know. I guess. I think that's the thing. He he wants that fi- he wants them to be fighting with each other for his affection, basically. Yeah. Well, I'm sure like writers confer, be like, "Hey, can you help me out with this?" Or like, hey, "Do you have a funny line I can throw in this?" But it doesn't seem like, especially in this era, it seems like you know this was a sketch written by a writer, this was a sketch written by a writer, but it doesn't feel like there's a lot of ideas like being thrown into the mix. Well, I feel like a lot of the writers on SNL. I think they're they're not the kind of people that work well with others. I don't think I think a lot of them would like would find it insulting if like you you sent your script to a writer's room to get punched up. You know, I think that's sort of like the 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 atmosphere of, of uh, creativity that's cultivated on SNL is 
you know, you did this and it's yours and we're going to do your sketch. It's not, you know, it's our show. It's our yeah. sketch. But that sketch is Uncle Joe. <laughs> but that's the problem is when the sketch sucks like Uncle Joe. And again, how many sketches got rejected so that they could put fucking, fucking Uncle Joe? And I'm just, again, thinking about like blocking and rehearsing this. The SNL band is behind Kevin Nealon and they have music cues. So they have to like follow along with the sketch. And yeah, that all had to be blocked. It would be like, okay, when Kevin Nealon says this, that's when you hit the drum beat, you know? It took time to make this. This wasn't, this isn't an improv. It's not like Kevin Nealon had an idea and said, hey, let's throw it up. They worked on this. Well, the set is also very kind of complex and busy. Like, there's a lot of design work that went into that. There's chandeliers hanging around and shit. You know, like... They, it's a whole, and, like, wedding set. They, they pan out. There's 20 people in this sketch. Like, they're just unnamed uh, extras, but they're sitting in, in there suits, just for... They yeah. had to fit them all with tuxedos and shit. And the sketch is but fucking... What? It's two words. Uncle Joe repeated over and over and over again. And then speaking of something getting repeated over and over and over again... Oh, fuck. The Incredible me. Hulk. Here you go, all cleaned up. That wasn't so bad, huh? No, that's great. Boy, you know, I'm, I'm really glad you're keeping such a happy outlook. Yeah, <laughs> well, I have to, or I'll turn into the Incredible Hulk. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and we don't want that, do we? No! no! Oh, I, I burned my hand! Okay. It hurts so oh, bad! Geez. Oh, all right, well, it's not that bad. We'll, we'll put some ice on it or something like that. Don't, don't worry about it. Come on, just step back and laugh at it. It's, it's funny. Get away from me! <laughs> Outside from Uncle Joe, this is the first time George Foreman has played a character. He's playing the Incredible Hulk. I was confused because I just thought Tim Meadows was turning into George Foreman. Well, the thing is, we're used to, uh, you know, uh, was it Dwayne Baracko Johnson or whatever the fuck it's called, where Barack Obama turns into Dwayne the Rock Johnson. You know, so it's, it's not necessarily a given that if somebody has a Hulk-like transformation, they're going to turn into the Hulk. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I just thought, so this, this sketch is, oh my God, it's fitting that this comes after Uncle Joe, because this sketch is just one thing over and over and over again. Chris Elliott and Tim Meadows are scientists. Every time Tim Meadows like pricks his finger or stubs his toe, he gets mad and he turns into the Incredible Hulk, who's played by George Foreman. But then the sketch ends in a fun little meta twist where George Foreman as the Hulk decides that he hates the sketch and wants to smash the writers, so the writers come out. Yes, Hulk tired. Hulk tired of sketch. Hate sketch. Hulk, Hulk smash set. He push quality. <laughs> he push break the lamp. Hulk, Hulk, what's the matter? Hulk angry. Hulk hates sketch. We're writers. Okay. <laughs> All right, Hulk wants to talk to the writers. Come on, where are the Cracker Jacks? I think come on. I think it's going pretty good, I thought. I mean, what seems to be the problem? Uh, uh, give Hulk script, Hulk show problem. Page two, Banner turning to Hulk. Page four, Banner turning to Hulk again. <laughs> Page seven, Banner turning to Hulk again. Page nine, what is this? Banner turning to Hulk again. Uh-huh. Audience get point. Page four, sketch go on 20 pages. <laughs> well, there's like, you know, there's all kinds of twists. Second time Hulk transform, Hulk not get laughed. Hulk think maybe, hmm, maybe Hulk. Fourth time Hulk transform, still no laugh. Hulk no not Hulk, it's script. Oh. Come on, Hulk, don't you think you're being just a tad critical here? No, Hulk no dummy. 
Huck watch show. Every sketch, one joke, over and over. No ending. That's what my mom says, too. And then uh, I did like the ending where he goes over to G.E. Smith and smashes his guitar. But yeah, this, ugh, just after sitting through Uncle Joe, which again, if you haven't seen the Uncle Joe sketch, is just Uncle Joe, Uncle Joe, Uncle Joe. This sketch is just Incredible Hulk, Incredible Hulk, Incredible Hulk. And then they do the little bullshit thing where they're like, oh, we know we're doing a repetitive joke, but we're apologizing for it and commenting on it. Isn't that funny? No, it's not funny. Make a better sketch. Well, it's that. It's like, you know you're writing a bad sketch. Why not just write a better one? And they even reference the fact that, like, they don't know how to write endings in a sketch where they didn't know how to write the ending. Yeah. Okay, come up with a better ending instead of just making fun of the fact that you suck at your jobs. Ugh, I hated that. Yeah, and I was wondering who this sketch was worse for, me or you, because when it started, I remember this episode, so I knew the ending. So I'm sitting through it going... He turns into the Incredible Hulk again, and I remember the ending to this sketch. There is no ending. The writers come out and say it's stupid. And then I was like, I wonder what Ben thinks of this. I wonder if he thinks it's building to something. What's better, getting disappointed or knowing you're going to get disappointed? Oh, I don't know. I mean, it incensed me. Here's what I was waiting for and hoping for. Because there's a, a moment, the, the repetitive thing is like, he turns into the Hulk, and then he smashes everything. And then he comes turns back into Tim Meadows. And then uh, they're like, oh, shit, we got to clean up. And then I think the third time, they're like, hey, what if we don't clean up? And then when he turns into the Hulk, maybe he'll clean up. And And then the joke is he actually starts cleaning up. And then he's like, this is boring. And that's when you get to the writer thing. What I was hoping would happen was the third time he'd go, Hulk, Hulk, no smash, nothing to smash. And then he just looks over to Chris Elliott and just like breaks his spine. And like he turns into like a a fake doll Chris Elliott that he can just smash around the room. (laughs) Like this didn't work out well. That would have been an awesome get a life ending, you know, like he rips Chris Elliott's head off and kicks it into the audience. Oh, that, w- that would have been great. No, I, and then like just a, like a really bad cut from Chris Elliott to then him ducking under a table and lifting up right. a Chris Elliott doll that he can then just destroy. Oh, I yeah. think that's that's what I would have done anyway. Yeah. Oh, the cheaper it looks, the better. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say about this sketch, I, I didn't rewind it, but I'm pretty sure George Foreman calls Chris Elliott Chris Farley. At the end, he's like, when he's pushing people out of the way, like leaving the sketch, he's like, get out of here, Farley. I just think it's funny that they keep, it's not even just that it's a repetitive joke. They literally use the same transformation footage three times. Yeah. Like it's exactly the same. It's not like they even redid it. Yeah. And think, and think about how watching this live would have worked because while, you know, we as the audience at home are seeing the stock footage of Tim Meadows turning into the Hulk, the audience is seeing Tim Meadows <laughs> walk off set and then George Foreman walk on set. And I feel like like previous versions of like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde have done this better where you sink under the table and then you come back up as the monster or in this case, George Foreman comes back up as you. Like, it's a thing that that cheap productions have been doing for years, but they were like, no, we have to cut to stock. Like, that's the only way they know how to do it, because they're also just a terrible production. Yeah, because it's also slow. So not only are we watching Tim Meadows turn into George Foreman three different times, it's long each time. (laughs) Like, it takes a good 30 seconds for the transition to happen, and you're like... I know where we're going. Why is it taking so long? It's like if you're on a bus to hell and the bus driver's like, we got to make a couple stops first. 
<laughs> like, no, just get me to hell. Did you notice a couple of the, like, you know where they cut away to, like, the bu- the main building between scenes? And, and all through the episode, whenever they would cut away to something like that to allow for transitions, they were always, they seemed to be a little longer in this episode than any other time. Well, I think the, just the whole episode feels slow and painful. <laughs> so that might just be you reading into it. But I, I think it took longer for George Foreman to get ready, like to get on his cue. So they were like, we got, oh shit, we got to hold on to that, you know, picture that building for like two seconds longer. Yeah, that could have been it. Yeah, I mean, George Foreman's lumbering to set. So hold the graphic. George <laughs> Foreman stopped at the catering, at the buffet table. He's grabbing a donut. He'll be there in a couple minutes. He's fake eating another hamburger. <laughs> He's just holding food up to his face. I don't think he re- Remember, all he knows how to do is punch. He has not mastered eating. <laughs> okay, well, that, that gets us to the second whole song, which I do think was a little better because it was a little faster. Yeah. And I feel like this band with a different singer would work for me. Yeah, yeah, I was... I got nothing to say about whole... But yeah, then after Hole, we get what I thought was my favorite sketch of the episode from memory. I, I, this felt like a Chris Elliott sketch going, like, as he comes in, I'm like, oh, he probably wrote this. This is going to be a good, be a good one. And yeah, I just, I was not feeling it. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's just the episode kind of like beating it out of me. Um, cause normally I would be all up for this. Chris Elliott walks into George Foreman's dressing room to take his mid show nap but he can't go to sleep unless someone reads Goodnight Moon to him. The problem is, old Chrissy, he can't fall asleep unless somebody reads to him. Oh, come on now. Oh, come on, George, seriously, please. I I honestly, I can't fall asleep unless somebody reads. My wife used to have to read to me every night before she moved away. (laughs) Please, come on, George, it's a short one, please. Oh, (laughs) Goodnight Moon. Read who it's by. By Margarita Wise Brown. Pictures by Clement Hurd. Clement? <laughs> he sounds like a weirdo. <laughs> and, but come on, Chris. It's not nice to make fun of people's names. Oh, I know, George, but Clement. Clement? Clement, come in for tea and brunch. All Clement. right, all right, all right. Now settle down. And I'm laughing at describing the sketch, but yeah, watching it, I was just like, yeah, I'm just not, I'm not feeling this. I'm just not in the mood. Well, because, yeah, it definitely feels like that kind of Chris Elliott sketch where, like, it doesn't require it to be George Foreman. Like, it could have been any host. So it feels like this is a sketch that he'd pitched, like, three other times this season and he finally got it on because it's like, who gives a fuck? It's it's George Foreman. Yeah. Maybe if it wasn't George Foreman and it was a host who could actually, like, you know, deliver lines well, it would be a little better. But I feel like... Because I got a a good laugh when... Do you think Chris Elliott... I think I lost you. Hello? I think I lost you. Hello? I can, I can hear, hear you. you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. I yeah. think we just both stopped talking at the same time. Oh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I feel like Chris Elliott, do you think he was just not respected by the writer's room uh, enough when he was on? Because I, I feel like it was always a struggle for him to get anything on. And when it, when it did, it was always like, okay, we'll give you a sketch when nobody cares about it. Yeah, from what he said, he was uh, unaware that he was expected to, like, be a writer-performer. He thought he would join the cast and, you know, be paired up with a couple writers and they would come up with material together. He didn't know he was supposed to, like, fucking pitch ideas. And so he was kind of instantly not happy either. 
And yeah, most of the Chris Elliott sketches of season 20, you can completely tell that they're just solo Chris Elliott ideas. See, and I think that's also a thing with Norman Rockwell. That's going back to like how he wants the writer's room to be that kind of adversarial environment. I think because ultimately he wants their voices to be kind of undiluted. It's sort of like when they talk about like the Marvel movies versus the DC movies where like Marvel movies, they're all homogeneous. They're all kind of the same, similar feeling to them. So they can all fit together. Whereas like DC, they want different directors to have radically different kind of movies. And I think that like Lauren Michaels kind of wants that, like, you know, he wants a sketch to feel like whoever wrote it, like their voices being heard in that sketch. Yeah. Um, yeah. The only laugh I got out of this is when uh, <laughs> Chris Elliott I guess I don't mind, but don't you have a little skit to put on out there? Ah, George, not me. I'm going to leave that for the kids. You know, the Farleys and the Spades and the Piscopos. I know I did like that joke, but yeah, otherwise this, this kind of, I have nothing else to say about this, honestly. Yeah. yeah um, I wish we would have gotten a better Chris Elliott sketch out of this episode. Um, and then we get a short film by Bruce McCullough called Stocking, where uh, Bruce McCullough plays a friendly stalker and he approaches his stocky and just kind of confronts her upfrontly and says, yeah, I've been stalking you and I've been watching you everywhere you go. Hi. You again. Are you following me? Why, no. I'm stalking you. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, my neighbor said there was a guy with a slightly crazed yet focused demeanor standing in my hedge for a long time, neck pivoted toward my window. Yep, that's me. Oh, yeah. well, it's great to finally meet you. It's great to finally meet you. Yeah. Um, yeah, and this is another so, one where, like, I don't really get the premise. Like, or, I mean, I get the idea of, like, what would happen if a stalker just went up to the person he was stalking and just said hello, but then nothing happens. She gets freaked out. Like, she's talking to him ca- casually for a while and then kind of gets creeped out by him. I feel like, like, if I were doing this as a sketch... I think the joke would be, like, she doesn't measure up, like, so he's kind of disappointed and, like, decides to leave or something. I don't know, some kind of subversion where, like, it doesn't seem like there's anything here other than, I mean, the performances are kind of interesting, but, like, I I don't get why this is a thing, like, he would would be passionate about doing to do a short film. Yeah, I think the joke is just that she's confronted by her stalker and she's just kind of casual cool about it. Um, But like I said earlier, I was completely checked out of the show by this point. Um... I, I, I got nothing to say about this, and I got nothing to say about Jackie Stallone's psychic circle either. Call my psychic circle and let me help you find your dreams of wealth and happiness. Because in life, you can take two paths. One path, taken by my son Sylvester, can lead to romance, wisdom, friendship, wealth, and incredible success. Or the other path, which leads you to my son Frank. You don't want that. Well, other than... Fuck them making making fun of Frank Stallone. Frank Stallone's awesome. Um, yeah, so this is Jackie Stallone, a played by, again, Janine Garofalo, who is all over this episode. It's a joke that Sylvester Stallone good, Frank Stallone bad. That's the sketch. I'm wondering if this was written by Norm, because, like, it seems like it would have been, right? I didn't think about that, but yeah, well, because he wrote the, the famous uh, Sylvester Stallone sketch where all his movies suck. Yeah, and I mean... <laughs> There's so many Weekend Update jokes about Frank Stallone. Um, so I'm wondering if this was just something Norm threw together. But it, it also seems like nobody cares. Like, I don't care about the show at this point, And I can also tell no one else cares. Janine Garofalo's just reading her lines off cue cards. And then we cut to, like, people in testimonials. And it's people reading their lines off cue cards again. Adam Sandler, like, hey, 
Frank Stallone sucks. Hey, and then David Spade. Hey, Frank Stallone sucks. Hey, and like, they're just like, all right, it's the end of the night. Who gives a fuck anymore? All I'll say about this is, go to YouTube, look up the song Far From Over, and then tell me Frank Stallone sucks. Fuck you. Yeah, Frank Stallone also does the um, the uh, the opening song in Rocky, the barbershop quartet thing where, take it back, ooh, take it back. I mean, I, and I mean, I get the joke. Frank Stallone has always been the butt of the joke because Sylvester Stallone's the more successful one. But it just it doesn't follow for me. I do have a little bit of context for it, though. Do you watch the Red Letter Media stuff? No. Oh, they're they're a YouTube channel and they do like weird, obscure VHS stuff. They they did a, an episode where they watched a an exercise video where it was the the famous elderly parents of Star. It was like uh, Jackie Stallone. Uh, Robin Williams' mom, Al Pacino's dad, and Dustin Hoffman's dad, and they were like doing an exercise instructional video. <clears throat> so I'm wondering if Jackie Stallone, and she's doing like a, I know what Jackie Stallone looks like and sounds like because of that, and she's doing a fairly good impression, or at least you know whatever. I mean, she's she's at least trying. She at least watched some reference for this. So I wonder if she was like in the media at, at around this time, like Hawkins stuff. Like if if, if people would have known who Jackie Stallone was independent of Sylvester Stallone, and she was somebody to be parodied, and that that's why this sketch exists. Um, and what isn't she like a weird psychic thing? Or am I just basing that on my memories of this sketch? Like, I always thought Jackie Stallone was into, like, the occult or something. Well, the weird thing about this, though, is, and they talk about it on that Red Letter Media episode, you notice how she's doing the Stallone thing with her mouth? Mm-hmm. Like, that's not a thing that she had and then Stallone inherited it. The reason Stallone's mouth does that is because they had to do the clasp to pull him out. They had to, like, pull him out by forceps, and it fucked up his mouth. Mm. So, like, that's why he talks like that. She talks like that because Sylvester Stallone was famous for talking like that, <laughs> and she wants everybody to know that she is Frank's, or that she is Sylvester Stallone's mom. So she fakes that thing that he does uh, naturally. She started doing an impression of her son. Yeah, so people would know that she's a Stallone. Because you know it's Frank Stallone doesn't have that. He doesn't do that. Right. <laughs> Talks like a normal damn person. Um, <laughs> the only, uh, and now, that's so that's our last sketch. But I do want to briefly talk about the good nights. Where, you know, George Foreman is like, hey, thanks for watching the show. And then Courtney Love jumps on him. And he screams, not again. Here's Michael Buffer. Get up here, Henry. I assume that was something behind the scenes. Like, it was he, she did that to him at some point during rehearsal or something. That's what I was wondering, because they would have had a dress rehearsal where they would have probably practiced the good nights as well. Um, and I was like, maybe she did that during the dress rehearsal. Because, yeah, it, just, it was weird that she jumps up on him, and the last thing you hear of the episode is George Foreman screaming, Not again! And it's like, oh, that's a something we didn't get to see. Uh, so, yeah, George Foreman episode... I don't watch it. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think I enjoyed Time Boxer more than anything in the Francis Ford Coppola episode. Yeah, this was a more fun watch than the last one. It just, but also, it was just, no, it, I don't know. I don't really know. Um, I would say this was a more fun watch, though. George Foreman's badness is somewhat funny in a way that Francis Ford Coppola's isn't. Yeah, there was definitely more of a charm to how bad this was than the Francis Ford Coppola one, because when that episode dragged, it just dragged. When this episode dragged, there was still stuff that was kind of interesting, 
or I think it's better because I hated it more. Like, while I was watching the Incredible Hulk sketch, I was, like, actively going, ooh, fuck this sketch, fuck this sketch. But while I'm watching the Francis Ford Coppola episode, I'm just like, eh, whatever, it's fine. Well, with the Francis Ford Coppola one, I'm so focused on the weird novelty of it, and, like, that there was kind of an interesting idea on paper that just isn't really being executed well. So, like, I'm kind of, like, I'm focused on it as a curiosity, whereas this, it's just a bad episode, but there's something... And I don't know that charming is the right word. There's just something really just... Like, I'm laughing when when he's the, the Incredible Hulk, and he's, like, like he's deliberately talking like the Hulk, but on the same level, it's like, that's kind of how he talks anyway. <laughs> that's what I'd say. I, I forgot that he was supposed to be the Incredible Hulk. When he's talking to the writers in that sketch and saying, like, Hulk hates sketch, sketch so repetitive, I was like, oh, that's right, he's supposed to be playing the Hulk. I forgot. Like, or he broke character and he's playing George Foreman again, and it's the, the, there's a, a distinction without a difference. Well, that was the other thing. I thought he had stopped the sketch as George Foreman, and he was like, oh, hey, guys, this sketch sucks. But no, he's still in character as the Hulk, which I kind of like now that I think about it. That, like, Chris Elliott's like, oh, hey, the Hulk broke the sketch. So he's trying to stay, like, they're still staying in the reality that this is the actual Incredible Hulk. I was going to ask this, because I was just thinking of just really poor, poor hosts and sketch performers. Has there ever been, because I know like Louise Lasser like hid in her dressing room or something, and I think there, like, there have been hosts that haven't been good on, on live TV. Has there ever been a sketch where somebody fucked up so bad that it literally ended the sketch? Like they were like, I, I just can't do this. And like, like they had to like pan away and cut cut the sketch? Um. Well, there was the Ashley Simpson Musical. Well, that was uh, a musical performance, yeah. Yeah. That's the only one I can think of where it actually came to a stop. I mean, there have been ones that have like gone so off the rails, like everybody just starts giggling or something, but I can't think of a sketch where they were like, like the stage managers coming in going, okay, guys, just cut this. <laughs> we can't do this anymore. Or just like somebody has like a panic attack or something in the middle of a sketch. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't think so. Um, but no, there's been quite a few train wrecks, but nothing like... Yeah, nothing where they actually physically had to stop the show. Because you just, you'd think after fucking 45 years, 46 years, that that would have happened at least once. Yeah, eventually someone would like shit their pants and go, cut, I have shit in my pants. But no, like Buck Henry got sliced by a fucking samurai sword, put a bandage on his head and did the rest of the damn show. Michael Douglas did that too. Michael Douglas hosted in the 80s. He cut his forehead on a glass and then like just the rest of the show, he's just wearing a bandage. They bandaged him up and said, get back out there. Yeah, and then he gave his wife cunnilingus and got throat <laughs> cancer. Uh, but he still did the show. All right, so yeah, that's uh, that's it for the George Foreman episode. Um, yeah, favorite sketch, Time Boxer. Least favorite sketch, Uncle Joe. So it is decided. Do you have a... Yeah, any, no, th- I have no disputing that, that characterization of the show. Yeah, um, and yeah, George Foreman, terrible host. Uh, so let's go to... Next week, I have already loaded up a random number generator. Number 91 is... Ellen Cleghorn. Well, that'd be a little higher. 91 is Laurie Metcalf. Oh, fuck you. I feel Why like... Why is she still on the goddamn list? Well, Laurie Metcalf was a credited cast member for one episode of Saturday Night Live. I, I feel like we've done... Every Laurie Metcalf movie already, like, haven't? Because we've gotten her so many damn yeah. times. 
Exactly. For somebody who was only on one episode of the show, we've watched a million fucking Laurie Metcalf movies. <laughs> no, that makes sense. Why right, do we see. do this to ourselves? A wedding, desperately seeking Susan, making Mr. Right, Candy Mountain, is Stars she in, and Bars. Is she in Problem Child 3, Junior in Love? Then I'll, I'll be excited. Runaway Bride? That's a Gary Marshall movie. Yeah. You say that as if it's a good thing. That's all I saw was Runaway Bride. So Runaway Bride or Reroll? I'm going to safely say Reroll on that one. I just, one, I don't think I'm mentally prepared for Gary Marshall after two episodes of the show. <laughs> all right. So we are passing on Lori Metcalf. I wonder if there's a scene in Runaway Bride where she runs away and then you just hear an old Jewish man go, look at that, that broad's running away. Uh, 81 is Taron Killam. I think that's probably a pass, too. Unless you want to watch 12 Years a Slave. Oh! Actually, we can watch Killing Gunther, the movie that he quit the show to do. I saw that. I was very uninterested. Um, but, uh, I see some, like... That's the only reason I'm curious about it. I see some shit for Taron Killam. He's in Grown Ups 2. I mean, we haven't watched Grown Ups 2 yet. Um, but I wouldn't be opposed to Big Fat Liar with Frankie Muniz and Paul Giamatti. Yeah, I mean, I I, I feel like that's a show we should watch for this podcast. Yeah, that looks like a good movie for the podcast. I hate uh, myself. Let's do that. I, yeah. You know, why not watch Big Fat Liar? You know, we say it now, and it sounds like a good idea, so why not just shoot for the moon and watch Big Fat Liar? This could not possibly backfire right in our fucking faces. I'm sure next week I will be like, man, I'm glad I watched Big Fat Liar. I can almost assure you that that will happen. Well, the thing that I'm kind of curious about with Big Fat Liar is we just watched Problem Child 2, and we both unabashedly enjoyed it. I think, Well, maybe not unabashedly, but we both found stuff to really like about that movie. Yeah. And I wonder if this will be like a weird kind of parallel universe version of that, because I think it's kind of a similar story, right? It's like a mischievous kid taking it to an old guy. I believe, yeah, Paul Giamatti is just the scorn of Frankie Muniz's... Um pranks and hatred or whatever. I've always been interested in checking it out just because I like Paul Giamatti and I've, <laughs> I've just always found this like a weird curiosity. Like I remember when this movie came out in theaters and going like, what the fuck is that? Like, why did they make that? I, I remember him turning blue at some point. I think he jumps into a pool that was like with blue dye in it. Yeah. Like he, for the rest of the movie. he's. I remember that from the trailer, but that's all I remember about this movie. Yeah, and now it's 20 years later, and I'm like, it's finally time to get around to Big Fat Liar. And that's more than Frankie Muniz remembers about the movie, because apparently he was in, like, a an accident or something, and he lost, like, most of his memory. Like, he doesn't remember anything oh. about Malcolm in the Middle. Like, he yeah, lost, like, all right. of his childhood memories. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All right, so next week for Taron Killam, who apparently plays... plays He plays Guy who was cut from the movie who we won't see. Like he has in every other fucking Taron Killam movie we've watched. Taron Killam, according to Wikipedia, plays Brett Calloway, a skateboard punk who consistently bullies Jason and is tortured by Kaylee. What? What? How old is he? Wasn't he like on Mad TV at this point? 2002? No. I don't know. I, I have no idea when. I, I don't think he was a teenager. 
Why is he a skateboard punk? I don't know. How old is he? I feel like he was an adult by that point. Taron Killam is my age. So in 2002, he would have been uh, 20. Yeah, a 20-year-old skateboard punk? Yeah, but it's Hollywood. You know, fucking Fonzie was 80 years old. Right. Hey, how's it going? Yeah, Fon- Henry Winkler was like 30 when he was fucking Fonzie. Um, Alright, so big fat liar next week. I'm sure that is a good decision. This is a good idea. Everybody knows it. <laughs> Can't wait for that. And uh, if I ever say anything different, I'm a, I'm a big fat liar. <laughs> all right well that'll be next week all right so is that is that all our business on the shed that's it until we see you again get off get the off shed. the shed